You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizenselmira.ca. And it's wonderful to see everyone on a snowy morning. It's, uh, we got to have some winter. And now we're getting it. So we continue our studies in James this morning. And if you have a Bible, you can keep your Bible open to James chapter 1. Sometimes it's really hard to pay attention. Sometimes it's really hard to listen. Sometimes it's just really hard to stay awake. And that's, you know, we keep it nice and cool in here so that you can stay awake. And um, I've always been struck by the story in the Bible, in the book of Acts. He was a young man, perhaps he was only a teenager, and he lived in the ancient city of Troas, which is in modern Turkey. Stories recorded for us in the 20th chapter of the book of Acts. It was quite an event when the uh, famous Apostle Paul came to the town of Troas and came to speak at Eutychus' church. He was a gifted preacher, had a lot of good material, but he was very long-winded, and it had been a very long day for Eutychus. Eutychus fought hard to pay attention, but his eyes were heavy And the room was stuffy, and it was jammed full, and the only place where Eutychus could sit was over on the ledge. And Luke places some responsibility on the preacher, because he said Paul prolonged his speech. In fact, it says Paul prolonged his speech until midnight. And it then says he kept talking longer and longer. And Eutychus discovered what many after him discovered, is that long sermons can be a very effective treatment for insomnia. And the scripture records that Eutychus sank into a deep sleep. It actually records further. It records he fell out the window, which, do you know, do you ever remember in church when you were a kid and you're, you, you know, you felt you were falling asleep and your head went forward and it jerked back and you were pretty sure everybody saw you? Well, everybody saw Eutychus. Out the window he went. Sometimes it is hard to listen. Sometimes it's hard to pay attention. Now, over the years in my position up here when I've been speaking, I've had a chance to observe some of Eutychus's friends. They exist in every congregation I've ever spoken to. Sharon's grandma, Katie, let it be known to her family that when her grandson-in-law, that was me, was speaking, she wanted to, there, she wanted to be there to hear him because she said, Harold is one of my favorite preachers. So Uncle Niall picked her up, quite literally. He picked her up and brought her to Woodside Church in her wheelchair. And it was a delight to see her sitting just right down there. And she sat just near the front of the the sanctuary. However, as you guessed, as the preacher began his spellbinding exposition, Grandma Katie's eyes became heavy. And I could see they were not holding up very well. And soon the soft peacefulness of a sermonic sleep proved just too overwhelming. But you know my favorite part of the whole story is... Back in those days, we used to stand at the back of the auditorium and shake people's hand. And so Uncle Niall would wheel Grandma Katie out the door. And you know what she said? Harold, that was a wonderful message. (laughs) Falling asleep when you're supposed to be awake is a small problem. And actually, you know, there's something about church. You know, you're kind of quiet. It's easy to do, isn't it? But what James is getting at here in the passage is a much more significant issue. Here's the big problem he brings up. It's being wide awake and missing the message. 
It's forgivable to fall asleep and miss it, but being wide awake and missing the message. Hearing the word, but not doing anything about it. Sometimes it can be really hard to pay attention. In the passage before us this morning in James chapter 1, there's a key verse which in some ways possibly is a key verse for the entire book of James. James chapter 1 verse 22 says this, be doers of the word and not hearers only. And to some extent, that summarizes the whole book. Last week, Darcy introduced us to this book of James, and we learned a number of things. We just summarize quickly. We learned that the book is one of the earliest that was written in the New Testament, perhaps only 15 years after the events of the crucifixion and the, res and the resurrection. The early church was in a very formative stage. Secondly, we learned that the James who wrote this letter was most likely the earthly brother of the Lord Jesus. And so he closely reflects the teaching that he heard directly from his brother. Now the irony is, when he heard much of this teaching, like the Sermon on the Mount, he didn't fully accept it. And he only accepts Jesus as the Messiah after his death and resurrection. Thirdly, we discovered that James has a very passionate style and he is very firm that his readers should live out their faith. So Darcy described his style of writing as hard-hitting, straightforward, right in your face. You described it as not very Canadian. Fourthly, James's letter, we discovered, is quite different than most of the other letters in the New Testament, such as the epistles, the letters from the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul has a fairly linear, logical, systematic flow to his argument. Then he makes an application to what he has just taught. James has a different style, a little more similar to the Old Testament prophets and perhaps the Old Testament book of Proverbs. He gives these various freestanding gems of wisdom. Then he circles around various ideas and comes back to those key themes, such as dealing with trials and temptation, the interconnection of faith and works, uh, the power of the tongue, and today's theme, the critical importance of not only hearing the word, but doing something about it. Uh, do you know what I do this week is just encourage each one of us to take 20 minutes, I think that's what, about what it takes, and actually sit down and read the whole letter all at one sitting. Now there's bits of it you won't understand, but you will get that kind of hard-hitting James's approach to Christian living. Let's look together at the passage we have before us this morning. James 1, beginning at verse 19. A proverb like about hearing and doing with a gem of wisdom. A proverb-like saying. Let's read those verses. James 1:19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In James's teaching on listening and speaking, we hear the words of the ancient Proverbs. Listen to some of those Proverbs. Proverbs 10, verse 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Proverbs 15, verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 17, verse 28. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. Slow to speak, slow to anger. And this wisdom applies to all relationships of life. 
If you want to have a friend and you want to keep a friend, I assure you this advice is for you. If you want your parenting to be effective, this, <laughs> this advice is for you. If you want your workplace to be a positive rather than a toxic place, this advice is for you. How much conflict could have been avoided and how much peace could have been restored if these words were followed? Listening is often the lost art in communication. I focus on what needs to be said, and obviously that's important. But hearing what was said before I speak is even more important. The old saying that it's not a coincidence that God gave us two ears and one mouth is certainly worth considering. In his book, How to Listen, author Oscar Trimboli makes the following observation. Surveys found that 75% of the respondents felt that they were either above or well above average in the skill of listening. That's interesting. 75% of us, when we were asked, are we good listeners, we said, yes, of course we're good listeners. But they only rated 12% of other people as being similarly skilled. His conclusion, that suggests that most of us overrate ourselves. Those numbers don't add up. Most of us can improve our listening. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Now, not only is this advice, this wisdom for all of life's relationships, this wisdom in this passage is related to our relationship with God's Word. That we listen to God's Word carefully, that we process the message well, that we listen if even sometimes our initial response is to push back or to protest. So here's our first takeaway from this passage this morning. It's this. For the Word of God to be effective in our lives, we need to really listen. Be quick to hear. Be slow to speak. Be slow to anger. For the Word to be effective, we need to really listen. Now let us continue. James 1, verse 21. And here's one of these examples where James gets pretty hard-hitting. Therefore, he says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. James gives a negative and a positive command. And the negative command is given in the strongest language. Put off filthiness. The word picture here is of a pig farmer coming in from his smelly barn with all that ammonia smell. And before his wife will let him into the kitchen, he has to strip off those filthy, smelly clothes so that he could go and get his breakfast. Put off all filthiness. Put off all wickedness. Moral failure. Duplicity. Scandal. You know what's interesting here? James is not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to Christians. James is clear and he cuts right to the point. If you're to grow as a Christian, the weeds have to go. Then there's the positive command. If you want to grow in your faith, receive with meekness the implanted word. The implanted word. It actually, I think, points back to a parable that James remembered that his brother Jesus had taught. The parable of the sower and the seed. Do you remember that parable? The story about the farmer who goes out spreading seed and some of it lands on the pathway, some of it lands on the rocky ground, some of it lands in among the weeds and the thorns, but thankfully some of it landed in good ground and it grew. 
The seed was the same no matter where it landed. The outcome of the crop was dependent on the soil that it grew in. The better the soil, the better the outcome. Now, I am not a lawn care expert, and you just have to go and check out my yard and you'll, you'll see I'm not making up stories. I'm not a lawn care expert. But I'm told by those who know about these kind of things, who know how to grow nice lawns, that there are two ways to have a healthy lawn. The first is this. You can pull out all of the weeds you can find, or if you can sneak down to Buffalo, you can get some poison, some 2,4-D, and poison those weeds. In other words, you can attack the weeds. But you know, attacking weeds always seems like a losing battle. There's a second thing you can do. There's another option, which the lawn care people tell me is a better option. You can improve the soil. You dethatch the grass, you aerate it, you top dress it, you reseed it, you fertilize it. And by improving the soil, the good seed has room to grow. The lawn can flourish and the weeds have a lot less space to take root. Here's the second takeaway. For the word of God to be effective in our lives, we need to have prepared hearts. Open to receiving what God longs to give us. To put away what is wrong and to receive his implanted word. For the word to be effective, we need to have prepared hearts. Now come along with me to verse 22, and I've told you this is the key verse in the passage and possibly the key verse in the book. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And deceiving here means making a wrong calculation or the the text that uh, Kelly wrote said, read said, don't fool yourself. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, fooling yourselves. It is good to hear the word of God, to really listen. It is good to have an open and receptive heart, but that's just the beginning. It's a good beginning, but we need more than a beginning. Think of it this way. Hearing is the foundation, but you can't live in a foundation or perhaps, maybe better, hearing is the plan, the blueprint for the building. The plan for building your Christian life. But you can't live in a blueprint. The purpose of the blueprint is to create a house you can live in. When you can go to a restaurant, it's, it's really nice that they have a good menu. But what's much more important than the menu is the meal it points to. A map, those Google Maps, how did we ever live without them? But it's not the map alone, it's the destination that the map leads to. And to drive home this principle, James tells a story about a mirror. James chapter 1, verse 23. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. I don't know how it was for you guys this morning when you got up, looked in the mirror. Sometimes it can be a little scary to look in the mirror. At least that's how I feel about 7 o'clock on a Monday morning. You know, I, I look in the mirror and I think, ooh, who is that old guy? <laughs> you know, bedhead on one side, a rooster tail on the other, bags under my eyes, a little stubble on my chin. So the question is, as I look in the mirror, what am I going to do about it? Will I have a shower? Will I comb my hair? Will I shave my stubbly beard? Or will I be like the man in James's mirror? Will I forget what I look like? 
will I head out, don't worry, I'm not doing this, but will I head out for that once-in-a-lifetime job interview looking like something the dog pulled in, right? The man in the mirror, he got the memo, but he did nothing about it. A hearer, but definitely not a doer of the word. I, I've always enjoyed Chuck Swindoll's preaching. I always wonder how these guys get these incredible illustrations. You know, where do they get them from, Darcy? I don't know. Google helps us, but Chuck Swindoll in his book, Improving Your Serve, tells this rather humorous but painfully honest story. Here's how it goes. Let's pretend, he says, that you work for me. In fact, you're my executive assistant in a company that's growing rapidly. I'm the owner, and I'm interested in expanding my business overseas. To pull this off, I make plans to travel abroad and stay with the new branch office until it gets established. I make all the arrangements to take my family and the move to Europe for six or eight months, and I leave you guys in charge of the busy Canadian organization. I tell you that I'll write you. See, this is a while ago. I'll email you, okay? I'll even text you. I'll text you regularly and give you instructions of what you should do. I leave and you stay. Months pass. A flow of letters are mailed from Europe and received by you at the national headquarters. I spell out all my expectations. Finally, one day, I return. Soon after my arrival, I drive down to the office. I'm stunned. Grass and weeds have grown up high. A few of the windows along the side street are broken. I walk into the receptionist's office, and she's doing her nails, chewing gum, and listening to her favorite disco station. You can tell this is from the 80s, right? I look around and notice the wastebaskets are overflowing. The carpet hasn't been vacuumed, and nobody seems concerned the owner has returned. I ask about your whereabouts, and someone in the crowded lounge area points down the hall and yells, I think he's down there. Disturbed, I move in that direction and bump into you as you're finishing a chess game with our sales manager. I ask you to step into my office, which has been temporarily turned into a television room. What in the world is going on, I say? What do you mean? Well, look at this place. Did you not get my letters? Oh, letters. Yes, we got your letters. As a matter of fact, we had a letter study every Friday night. Every Friday night since you left. We've even divided up all the personnel into small groups and discussed many of the things you wrote. Some of them were really interesting. You'll be pleased to know that a few of us have actually committed to memory. In fact, one of the employees has memorized an entire letter. Great stuff in those letters. Okay, okay, I say, you got my letters. You studied them, and you even memorized them. But what did you do about them? Oh, do about them? We didn't do anything about them. In the world of business, such behavior would be absurd. How much more in the realm of God's word? James continues with a positive illustration. Let's read James 1, verse 25. But the one who looks in the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. There's another individual who looks into the mirror of the word, and rather than walking away and forgetting, they walk forward, transformed. Transformed by practicing the perfect law, the law which gives liberty. A life transformed by the redeeming grace of Christ one who follows the law of Christ, not out of obligation, but out of love. In James 2, verse 8, James calls this the royal law. 
to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your will and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the one who is blessed. I think James may have been reflecting at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount in in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus concluded the Sermon on the Mount with these well-known words. He said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a man, a wise man, who built his house on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Here's the third takeaway. For the word to be effective in our lives, we need to act on what we have heard. Did you get that? For the word to be effective in our lives, we need to, be, we need to act on what we have heard. And that leads to a very basic question. What does faith in action look like? What does it look like to act out our faith? What does it mean to be a doer of the word, to act on what we have heard? Let's look at James 1, verse 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart or fools himself, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James focuses on three key aspects of living out our faith. The first is this, the issue of self-control, particularly in regards to what I say, bridling my tongue, controlling my speech. Secondly, the second part of living out our faith is the necessity of compassion to the vulnerable and the neglected, to the poor and the forgotten, to the orphan and the widow. And thirdly, to live out our faith, there's a call to personal integrity, to avoid the downward pull of evil, to stay stain-free in a very murky culture, to keep unstained from the world. Now, before I look at further at these principles, I think I need to explore a word here, because I don't think I should ignore it, a word that James uses to introduce this exhortation, this encouragement to be genuine and authentic in how we live out our faith. Look again at verse 26 and 27, and note the word religious and religion. If anyone thinks he is religious, there's the word, and then the end of verse 26, this person's religion is worthless, verse 27, religion that is pure. Religious, religion. These are words we feel a little uncomfortable with. We don't typically describe our Christian faith as religion or religious. Yet these are words which James doesn't hesitate to use. In our current postmodern culture, it has become acceptable to cancel words that are deemed by the politically correct as being inappropriate. Unfortunately, there have been some Christians who practiced canceling words before it was a trend in culture. And one of those canceled words is the word religion. A few years ago, one Christian author went so far as to actually write a book called The End of Religion. And it became rather trendy for some Christian teachers. And I, you know, true confessions, I think I might have done this too, so forgive me. 
It became rather trendy for some Christian teachers to say something catchy like, Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. Well, that's catchy, and it alliterates, but it's an unnecessary conflict. The question is, what does the word religion mean? The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines it like this. Religion is the service and worship of God are the supernatural. In other words, religion is a kind of a neutral word. It's a descriptive word. In the verses before us here in James chapter 1, the words religious and religion actually refer to the external practice of our faith. For example, what we're doing this morning. Prayer, scripture reading, singing, preaching, and other practices like communion and baptism. That's what James is referring to. So James is saying if someone is participating in religious activity, worship activity, are they really living it? Does their worship practice impact their entire life? Does it all add up? So you see, it's not religion per se that's a problem. It's insincere religion. That's a problem. It's hypocritical religion. That's a problem. It's empty religion. That's a problem. Even false religion. So with that in mind, let's look at those verses again. If anyone thinks he is religious and doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So, what does worthy religion look like? What is pure and undefiled religion? Well, the first is it is marked by self-control, particularly control of my words. When Christ gets a hold of my life, he gets a hold of my tongue to put a bridle in it. As a, as a cowboy puts a bridle on a wild horse so it can be controlled. James introduces this concept, and in James chapter 3, the tongue as a problem and the power of the tongue. And in James chapter 3, he goes full out. So in a few weeks, I think Darcy's got that passage. Man, James really gives it to you in regards to the tongue. It's a fire. It's, 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 it's all kinds of things. And you know, I think in an age of social media, the tongue is much broader than just what we say. It's also what we write. In an age of social media, this is encouragement we can all use. So be prepared for that talk on James chapter 3. Secondly, religion that is the real deal is marked by social concern, particularly concern for those most vulnerable. Compassion for those at risk of exploitation. And in the ancient world, that was the widow and the orphan. The widow was at risk of extreme poverty after the death of her husband if no one would step forward to provide and shelter and care for her. To visit her means to support her. In the ancient world, the fatherless, the orphan, was at risk of exploitation, slavery, or forced prostitution. Do you know, those who focus on the evil of human trafficking today would tell us that that problem continues. That young people who lack a supportive family that young people who are either abandoned or are homeless are still at the highest risk of sexual exploitation. When our lives have been impacted by the saving grace of Christ, it embeds within our soul a love for the lost and the least. It's a sign that we truly have committed our hearts to Christ. When he gets a hold of your heart, he transforms it and gives you a care and concern for those in need. As we have received his grace, we want to share it with others. 
as Christians, it's our calling to both proclaim the gospel and to care for the needy. And in doing so, we obey the commands of Christ. There's a third mark of true religion. Religion that's true and undefiled is committed to the necessity of personal integrity. It's guided by inner values. It's a heart that's transformed by the Holy Spirit, keeping unstained from the world. The temptation to submit to the values of the fallen world around us is huge. It's huge. The temptation to self-promotion, to self-preservation, to self-centeredness is real and it's incredibly powerful. It's only when we fight against it that we discover how powerful it is. The temptation to allow the values and decisions we make to depend on how we feel rather than what has been clearly revealed. To, you know, I think something I should comment on here, to stay unstained from the world, some Christians have had a tactic that we need to kind of leave the world. And over the centuries, some Christians have tried to escape from society. They've gone to monasteries on mountains or in the desert. Or some of our Mennonite friends have moved to remote, remote places in the country. They've created these sheltered colonies that'll be far away from the temptation of society. The fact is, most of these attempts to escape from society have not ended well. No, we're called as Christians to something much more challenging and much more difficult. In John chapter 17, verse 15, Jesus prays this prayer for us. Father, he prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He prays that we are kept in the difficult situation we find ourselves in. The challenge we are given is to live our Christian lives with integrity, even in the midst of the murkiness and the messiness of our complex culture. To live in times of moral laxity and remain unstained, this is the evidence of true religion. So nobody falls asleep, I'm going to quit right there. Let me just review. For the word to be effective, we need to really listen. For the word to be effective, we need to have prepared hearts. For the word to be effective, we need to act on what we have heard. And here's the final takeaway. For the word to be effective, we need to live it. Controlled speech, compassion, personal purity. For the word to be effective, we need to live it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for these powerful words of Scripture. They challenge us and they call for our full attention. Open our ears that we would listen well, that we would hear your word. Open our hearts and help us to obey even when it's difficult. Open our hands in service to those who need compassion. Strengthen us as we seek to do your will. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.